There were 15 minutes in my life, and I know I can tell you exactly when it happened. I mean, it was roughly 15 minutes, when, which was different than the rest of my life. And that was not thinking that God did not exist, but the real alternative, which is that God is evil. Hello, welcome to Confessions. This is the podcast where we talk to interesting and well-known people and try and drill down into their core beliefs and uh, just try and work out what they're all on about. And um, we try and do this a little bit in the context of their life story and uh, understand what they think a little bit from that perspective. And I'm delighted to have Andrew Sullivan with me today, famed columnist of America who... uh, who's just described being here as being away from home. <laughs> and I reminded him that this was home for him. It is. It's been a long time, though. But, yeah, it's been nice to come back. I always love it coming back. And, uh, though London's never been my home. I mean, I'm a, I'm a East Grinstead. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, boy. Sorry, boy. Well, Sussex kind of sorry, Sussex. Yeah. Okay. Perhaps we could start by just getting you to describe something about you know, East Grinstead or wherever oh. it was. That, but you know, the home in which you grew up and the sort of values that surrounded you and something about how that might have shaped you a bit. Sure. Um, I was a lonely boy. No strength, no joy. In really? In a world of my own at the back of the garden. No, I'm quoting the Bad Shop Boys. Uh, I'm just having... <laughs> that's from left to my own devices. No, I... Um, let me be serious for a second. I grew up um, in a little... in a street at the very edge of a small town, East Grinstead. And... My dad worked in an insurance company. Um, <clears throat> my mum was stay at home for most of the time um, and brought up a, a kind of strict Roman Catholic. And both, both parents? No. My dad's sort of indifferent to everything like that. My mum, however, absolutely ferocious. Uh, well, ferocious. She was very devout from an Irish Catholic family. Mass in the week as well as in uh, Sundays? Not my mom, actually. Um, my grandmother was the, the really devout one. She was the seventh of 13 kids from Tralee in Ireland. So we're kind of a half Irish, half English. Uh, but my grandmother's house was like holy water everywhere. Uh, she talked about Our Lady like she was next door and was going to bring over a cup of tea. There were saints everywhere. And I, <coughs> I was enchanted by Catholicism and uh, was quite a devout kid. Um, altar boy? Altar boy, yes, absolutely. No one touched me. I was, what was I, chopped liver at the time? But no, I was, I was, and I had a lovely experience. And if I would describe philosophically, I mean, I think my world for those first 10 years was, uh, uh, was aware of God and everything and provided a framework to my life that made everything make sense. And I, it was a very beautiful rural area too. Sussex can be gorgeous. And in that part of my life, I see that as really when my life was totally coherent, uh, philosophically, intellectually, religiously, spiritually. And I think having that sense of being in this Catholic world, I went to a Catholic primary school, uh, centered me with a certain kind of meaning. And the world is enchanted. I, ha- I, w- I, I, I was enchanted. Uh, this And the disenchantment of the modern world was something that was actually alien to me. I could see it in the periphery. I could see the grimness of modernity and its banality and its distractions and its ugliness. But then there was this place which was dark and quiet, where people weren't rushed, and when certain things were, were spoken and chanted or sung, they were the things that have been chanted and sung for centuries and centuries and centuries, reflecting this profound moral truth. And uh, that was really, I think, my grounding in, in the world. And of course, the following 40 years, as it were, have been a process of disenchantment, but re-enchantment at the same time. Oh, okay. My, I had a difficult childhood, to be honest. Um, my mom... Uh, suffered from bipolar depression and she was hospitalized several times in my childhood. Uh, and to be honest, my family life was not easy. There was a lot of domestic trouble in the house, a lot of unrest. And I think I sought a certain amount of refuge in the countryside around me and in the beauty of that. And for me, nature and God have always been 
coterminous uh, and easily implicated in one another. Uh, I can honestly say I've never doubted uh, meaning, meaning or what I might call godness that's there. Um, it's the it, background against which makes things w make sense. And that's the sort of stuff that's in the background. It's the way in which you understand things. Yes. So it's hard to doubt that the way you understand things. No. Um, I, the way I might put it is that it never occurred to me that God didn't exist. And, and I, I'm always incapable of believing that, if I were being completely frank. There were 15 minutes in my life, and I know I can tell you exactly when it happened. I mean, it was roughly 15 minutes, when, which was different than the rest of my life. And that was not thinking that God did not exist, but the real alternative, which is that God is evil. Right. Uh, and that was at a particular <laughs> moment in my life where it was just before my 30th birthday, actually. And uh, I think I was absorbing a huge amount of grief, really. My, my mother was once again in extreme pain um, psychologically in a hospital. And, and that really always affected me. I was, a, I was very sensitive and, and very close to my mom. And her suffering was deeply... Felt she's also, um, yeah, I'm being very confessional now. Uh, she also had borderline personality disorder, which meant just, there was no edit function with my mother. And I was a very smart little kid, and she told me everything uh, as if I were her husband, really, or as if I were her. And too much information, it was way too much. Uh, it was enormous amounts of pain directly into my psyche, and also extraordinary amounts of love into my psyche, too. Uh, too much for a little boy to handle, really, but that's what happened. So you asked to perform a role in the family structure that was your uh, sort of your dad's role or something To some like extent that. like that, yeah. yes, um, which uh, I wasn't really ready for. And, of course, then when she disappeared, when she was in this much pain, when she just disappeared, uh, it was hard for me. I was four years old uh, when my mother on Christmas Day walks into the snow in the 90s and... People uh, have to, from the local hospital have to come pick her up. And, and uh, I honestly can't celebrate Christmas to this day. Is uh, that right? Yeah, I can't. Uh, I have absolute phobia towards it. I have to go somewhere tropical or somewhere. Well, are you, is that what you do? You go somewhere that, that there's I'm going to no... go to Morocco this year. Um, you won't find much Christmas there. No, the idea is to abolish it uh, in my own mind. I mean, I know I've had a lot of therapy on this, and uh, I should get over it, but uh, I, I can't. Uh, it just it fills me with absolute dread and panic. And what are the what are the value? What are the sort of values? Let me, let me, Go you, on. Yes, yes. I yes, was yes. talking about those fifty minutes just yes, to give you yes, the proximate yes, 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 uh, reasons for it. it. Was the one uh, I had just been diagnosed with HIV, and I was surrounded by it uh, in my late twenties. Um, in the same period, my best friend had been diagnosed with AIDS. Uh, he was also 29. Uh, my mother was in the mental hospital, and there was a moment. It was my actually it was my 30th birthday. I was alone, and I was walking. I was in Provincetown, which is sort of my refuge, and I was going to the the beach by myself. And you go through dunes, and it's wonderful wilderness out there. And suddenly, it occurred to me that this was completely, obviously unfair. These were all good people. They were often marginalized people in the AIDS epidemic. They were people who had been struggling to just survive anyway. And this was visited upon them in the most horrifying way. I mean, uh, these were not easy deaths, Charles. I mean, they were horrible, tortured deaths with diseases that there was no cure for, for of young people who were all around you and part of your own community. And it was traumatizing to take care of them. I looked after my best friend for two years, and then he died. 31. Uh, and I also knew that I was, I believed that I was going to die too. Why would I not? Why was I not going to be the same as everybody else? And it was terrifying because you're aware of the distance and you can see it in front of you, what's going to happen to you. Uh, anyway, I just literally fell to my knees suddenly. I'm not a Job person. I've never been. And I really did believe in those 15 minutes that there was that God was evil, the, the evil wins. But, but the, the surprise is not that the 15 minutes started, but that the 15 minutes ended. Yes. And 
I wish I could explain to you how they did. But all I can say to you is that some, somebody picked me up. I did not get up by myself. And then I walked to the beach and uh, uh, I realized that there is meaning and there is a God and he does love me and he will save me and, <clears throat> and he will look after my mom. And, he'll, and God bless you that Patrick, my friend, is, is with him. Um, but it was a typical period, obviously. I mean, I, I, I dated four people who died, uh, which is kind of a kind of typhoid Mary in that. Um, uh, all in their 20s. Uh, and I think if I would understand a lot about my... I mean, I am a child of that experience. I mean, how could you not? It's like being a war veteran. Uh, and in that crucible of suffering, of course, and terror, terror, uh, came this desire to make things better and, and to make this end, make this humiliation and end. And I think that's why I became this extremely passionate argue for marriage equality and for the dignity of homosexuals and to make sure that uh, these horrible indignities that were visited upon people were never, would never happen again. So can I just go to the school yeah. bit? Because one of the things that I understand you picked up, you, you're sort of you're beginning to be a bit of a Tory boy at this stage. Oh, I was very much so, yes. Yeah. And one of the reasons was that when I was at grammar school, which, which saved me really, it, it, it got me out of my home. It gave me a whole other world. And you were a clever boy there, so you and were I turned out in... uh, weirdly. I didn't realize this, but I was I, I was top of the class, and, they, and it was one of these schools that used to list you one to thirty every month. I mean, it was <coughs> oh, mortarboards, <dear>. boys, <laughs> okay, um, brutal. But what I realized is I suddenly became the the SWAT, um, the girly SWAT, to to, to uh, paraphrase uh, Mr. Johnson, uh, and uh, uh, and then I, I the History Boys, the movie, the play, that was my life. Same time, history teacher, early entrance to Oxford, uh, got a scholarship to Oxford. Another unbelievably wonderful experience. And what did you do there? I did modern history and modern languages. Okay. Uh, and uh, I was at Magdalen and uh, president of the union. Uh, and uh, I had four ambitions at Oxford. One was, I mean, this is the kind of guy I was. I was so, I was like... <clears throat> I was in reading about Boris Johnson recently in his early years and how he uh, had these extraordinary ambitions from a young age, and so did I. Uh, I remember there was this, in, in grammar school early, as, a, as an exercise in, uh, in writing, in English, they asked us to write our own obituaries. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And went around the class and uh, people were saying, oh, well, so-and-so died, he was an astronaut, he was a, he was a, a football player, uh, he built bridges or whatever. And it came to me. <laughs> I'm sort of, it's embarrassing, really. But uh, the mind began, today the nation mourned. <laughs> <laughs> They're very self-revealing, aren't they? When you write that. It's oh, like, Jesus it's Lord. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I want to be world king, really. But... Uh, uh, so and this is. Am I trying to work out the era of this? Is this sort of Thatcherism, yes. minor strike, all yes. those sorts of things are going Absolutely. on? Absolutely. Are you sort of radicalised in some particular way? By yes, what's I'm. Going a, on I'm, here? A, I'm a Thatcherite. Yeah. While I was at the grammar school, the Labour government decided that it would abolish it, and because it was elitist, and I believed that I was certainly would never have been able to go to such a school if it had been private, and. I and they wanted to merge it with the local comprehensive and remove all testing, uh, and that the idea that a government would level things would destroy a perfectly great institution that, when I first went there, had more scholarships to Oxford than any other state school in the country, that it would destroy it for the sake of equality, nominal equality, uh, enraged me. It made me a conservative. But I can't see you at Oxford, I mean, posh college at Oxford too, Maudlin. I can't see you at Oxford rubbing up completely comfortably with Bullingdon Club no. type of uh, I was there with mentality. Boris. Yeah. Did you uh, know him? Yes. Well, yes. What was well it, I was what president was of the like? union when, I was president of the union just before he came up, then he kept, we overlapped a year, and I was quite uh, supportive of him in the union, and he was, uh, he's, uh, he was fun. I mean, he was, he's uh, what he is now. Um, 
fact, the fascinating thing about him is he hasn't grown or evolved a single inch. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's the... utterly what he was. He hasn't. He's no. He's emotionally completely stunted, uh, psychologically stunted. I think um, all of us grow and evolve and have experiences that let us change a little bit. Um, uh, didn't seem to happen to him, but I kind of liked him, and I was, and I had a little. I was a little chippy. Let's put it that way. I was a little chippy, but I also thought I was smarter than they were. And they kind of thought that too, actually. They were insecure. And you might have been. And I might have been. Um, and so I started debating, and I, was, I got elected president in my second year, first term of my second year, which is sort of never done before. And got it all done and was uh, acted on the main stage and uh, nine or so shows. And uh, then I got my degree, and then I uh, – uh, thought I got you did all the things that those ambitious young kids do which is that I I thought about going to the BBC there were other scholarships available and there was this Harkness scholarship to go to Harvard which is another prestigious thing you did that and then you went on a sort of Pete Buttigieg sort of uh, Bill Clinton kind of procedure and uh, so I went to America just turned 21 very young uh, rather June expected to loathe it a closeted super smart Catholic boy who had felt, and I think I, throughout all that process, that the class system here, I mean, I saw that at Oxford, and it really ticks me off to a certain extent. And I also noticed that I'm a pretty basically enthusiastic person, straightforward. I like doing things, and uh, I have opinions. And at Oxford and in England back then, I think things have changed a lot, but it was the general, the general attitude is, well, who do you think you are? Why are you doing this? If you did something, uh, it was trendy upstart. to just upstart. I won pushy fresher. You know, these people look down on you. You weren't supposed to look like you were working hard. Uh, so in that, you can see why I was also a Thatcherite in that sense, because I, th- I believed in individual effort, merit. Uh, but Boris and people like that were all about effortless superiority, yes, aren't exactly. they? exactly. And he got a second. <laughs> so <laughs> it wasn't that effortless. Yeah. <laughs> So America turns out to be a liberation. That must be part of the story. Yes. Uh, within about six weeks, I wrote to my parents and said, anyway, this sounds a very funny thing, but I, I feel like I'm finally home. It's also true, I think, if I look back, that I was trying to find a way to get out of the tortured relationship with my mother and uh, my father and my family. Um, and even in Oxford, my mother would come stay with me to be protected and... There's no way I realized at some point I couldn't bear that weight, and, it, and I shouldn't bear that weight. It was it was completely unfair. So there's a little bit of guilt about going to America too. Yeah. Huge guilt. Yeah. And my mother immediately went back into a mental hospital <clears throat> and wrote me unbelievably painful letters. But it was a new day, <laughs> and so I have almost the classic American immigrant experience. I I started over. But the, this would also facilitate you coming out. Yes, of course. Most, you know, it's quite common back in there. Again, it's hard to explain to people today. But the 80s, you know, the 70s and 80s were a completely different world. No one was out. But uh, there's something being taken away from all your context, uh, all your friends and uh, peer group and family and all the things that recognize you, of all your past. They go somewhere where everything, the slate is kind of clean again. And that you kind of you, – it's, it's like other, other gay kids go to a big city and reinvent themselves there. I mean it's, it's, it's hard. I think it's still hard to really go through that process and stay exactly where you are. It helps to go get away. So, uh, yeah, it took a while. It wasn't straight away. And there's mourning that's going to go on here. I mean part of your sort of love of, you know, Sussex countryside and all that sort of stuff, that presumably there's some sort of mourning that goes on in this process as well. Yes, because I loved Oxford and I loved my the countryside where I grew up and I loved England and I still do. And uh, I never imagined in a million years until I got there that I would ever go to somewhere like America, which at that point, being a young folky, I thought was incredibly crass and, <laughs> and dumb and all the usual prejudices that English people used to have and to some extent still do have about America. But they all seem to be like me. <laughs> they want to do things. If someone did something great, people were like, yeah. Applaud it. Um, I love the American word, sure. <laughs> it wasn't, yeah, all right. Um, it wasn't, <laughs> it 
It was, I suppose so. Or mustn't complain. It was like, sure, <laughs> absolutely, fuck yeah. It was this sort of um, positive. It was energetic. It was um, uh, exciting and honest and straightforward. And and you knew where you were. And uh, and class disappeared. And so so one of the things that interests me there about that mm-hmm. that you're, you're sort of can do this sort of excitable sure type of thing is you're doing a PhD on Oakshot. Not okay. at first, but eventually, yes. Oh, I see. Okay. I'm, so doing, thought... I'm doing the generals first. I'm doing I, the, I the general political science stuff. I'm doing that. And then I'm reaching into political theory slowly. I'm doing Plato. I'm doing... Uh, I mean, I had this, this amazing professor, Harvey Mance. He was still alive. And an hour a week, we would sit down and read The Republic by Plato. Uh, and we didn't finish it after two years. Uh, that kind of steeping in scholarship and was just exhilarating for me. And I, I, I also took the opportunity. And when I got there, I thought, look, I'm this little formed, pre- prematurely formed little Tory. Uh, do I really believe that? And I'm also this rigid Catholic who had gotten more rigid in my doctrinal certainty. And, uh, and partly because I was terrified of my sexuality, I think you construct, a, you cling to doctrine and to certainty as a way to cope with it. But that's not a good way to believe. It's not believing, actually. It's insecurity. It's fear, completely not faith. Right. Yeah, uh, right. and, and I see that paradigm all over the place. Yes, of course. Uh, but, so I, 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 I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't mean to be pious, but I really did think this is an opportunity for me to figure out what I believe, uh, really, and to think about what I want to do. I thought there were various paths in life you could pick that were virtuous, and one was the religious life. The other was the political life. And the other was the intellectual life. And then there was the performing life, the artistic acting stuff. And I always regard them as different modes of being and modes of... Vocations. Vocations. And, and uh, I, I decided to be essentially the intellectual and the writer rather than... Because I think temperamentally that was more suitable to me. I'm just not a joiner. I'm not easily corralled into a group. I tend to be, my instinct when everybody around me says one thing is to say exactly the opposite. In the union, for example, I almost never spoke on this winning side because I found it much more fun to try and uh, make an argument that would be unpopular, but you could find a way to make people it seem... Call them, people, people disparage that as being contrarians these days, but I, I think there's something more noble about that um, that way of thinking about the world than the sort of simply contrarian, as people dismiss it. No, I'm not simply contrarian. I was genuinely trying to think about the other side's point of view and, and genuinely trying to see where, where I actually thought the the rubber hit the road in any of these debates and to think clearly about that. And, and, and by the way, I'd done all that through high school. One an interesting little facet is that um, from grammar school is that I did have this constant fight and uh, debates all the time with Keir Starmer, who was in my uh, grammar school. Wow. And he got on the same bus every morning, 428, and he got on Oxted and uh, we used to fight every day, all day on the bus. Uh, he was a anti-Nazi league, you know, this was the 70s, and I was a true blue Thatcherite, and we went at it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was super fun. And I love Keir. He's a, he's a good man. And, <laughs> and uh, we had a good time together. But you see, I actually, I love debate. Yes, yes, yes. I like being with people who disagree with me. That's yeah. why I feel so out of place right now in this culture. Yeah. Uh, I... I, I I find that exhilarating to be challenged and to challenge, and and I always have. So when you're when you when you're in America, so intellectually it allows you to do different things. It so did. That, so I, what, I is, what, is, the, what is the different thing that it allowed you to do when you when you when you started going over there in terms of your political philosophy, I guess, rather than a sort well, of well, like, I decided to start from scratch. Okay. So I took all the courses Plato, that started maybe. with the greats and, and went through the texts and and then taught the moral and political theory of all types. I mean, I read Marx, I read Nietzsche, God help me, I read Foucault, I read Derrida, I read Locke and Hobbes, all of it, you know, and in a rather ingenuous way, what is true? And I didn't like the way – I did history at Oxford, so it wasn't the same thing, but we did something called the history of political thought as if these ideas were dead, as if actually we'd achieved a new situation where we didn't have to think about this and only, we only had to think about Rawls's latest piece. Uh, and I thought that was a sort of cult of contemporaneity and that maybe Aristotle had been right about everything. 
at least we should consider that possibility and read these texts. It's clearly true, by the way, that he was right about everything. I think, I think in general, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Completely true. Not uh, Plato for me, but... Yes, uh, no, I know. Uh, even though Plato is absolutely brilliant and, and incredibly exciting to read and think about and amazing really to think that that was going on back then. And that, but also humbling to realize that modernity is, is really just one part of human uh, existence and it might be uh, one of the worst parts. <laughs> uh, so I never had this idea, this wiggish idea of progress or that we can discount everything that's the past because it's boring and now we have to do what's trendy and uh, uh, and here. So, but also came under the influence of the Straussians in America. Uh, okay. Took took classes with them. They knew I wasn't one of them, but I did respect deeply the commitment to the texts. And their, their un- and their belief that they were trying to figure out what an individual was truly trying to say and think, even when they were guarding from the actual truth. So they, they took it very seriously, and they were very countercultural at the time. And I found that kind of thrilling. Uh, in this period that you've described, reading all these great texts and these sort of like basic texts of, of, of the Western canon, are you, how are you growing Intellectually, uh, in from the sort of Tory boy Oxford Union, uh, I think I, I, I like I hope to say that uh, quite a lot, um, and the sort of Boris Johnson. Well, I don't want to bash Boris because, uh, but that kind of Oxford Union kind of, I think in England they, you kind of prematurely mature. In other words, you people you need to experience both the world and you need to open yourself to other ideas and see what shakes out. And to be honest with you, uh, I was in flux for quite a while. I mean, I knew what I wasn't. I knew I wasn't a materialist. I knew that when I read Marx, I, it was, I was very interested and I thought it was incredibly smart in many ways. But I knew that wasn't where I could – I didn't really find that resonant. Um, and I didn't – I mean, I tackled contemporary liberalism and I explored conservatism. And, and I was trying to reconcile, really, the, the, the conservative sense of loss with the exhilaration of the present uh, so that conservatism doesn't become a kind of repressed, uh, constricted adherence to an uh, imagined past as opposed to an intelligent, adjusted understanding of how we are, what we are, and a delight in the present and a, and a belief in change that is completely uh, conterminous and interacted with the past. So that you, the abstract ideologies that would wish to change the world were not what I was interested in. And then I, stumbled, then I was reading Hobbes and the introduction to The Leviathan was written by Michael Oakeshott. Uh, and I, this was an essay that just blew me away. But if people want to, if people get that Penguin edition of Hobbes's Leviathan and read that introduction by Oakeshott, I think they will also, if they, if they're patient and they think about it, they will be over, overwhelmed by uh, Oakeshott's reconciliation of of liberalism and conservatism in a way that I think is probably one of the most important insights of the 20th century. Uh, I mean, the idea that defending classical liberalism means that I am a white supremacist. Uh, and this is regularly believed by everybody on left Twitter, for example. I mean, I'm described as such as if it is a factual, just a fact, <laughs> is mind-blowing um, to me. It's a, it's a categorical belief, a uh, Catholic belief in the equality of every human being, regardless of all any of these contingent uh, manifestations of humanity, your race, your gender, your, all these other things, which are not anywhere near as important as your soul and your personhood and the command of us to treat everybody uh, as the same uh, in terms of their moral dignity and their integrity and their equality. Yeah, infinite individual worth that is unique and precious and and defendable at all times. And this is why I hate these systems uh, uh, that attempt to bludgeon that individual into a, some sort of group identity. which And, that's, and this anti-systematic type of thing, this is what you get from Oakeshott. Yeah, it's one of the things you get from Oakeshott, the critique of rationalism, the critique of ideology, um, and the joy of living. I mean, he's the first conservative that I read that was like, he, I mean, one of the things he said is he's conservative in politics so he can be radical in every other human activity. This, the limitation of politics... Uh, where life is really uh, – my thesis was on the, the, his theory of practice, um, the understanding that human beings live 
intuitive and uh, cooperative lives that they figure out as they go along. There's no actual rules to it. The supreme example of which <coughs> Oakshot is friendship, uh, which is uh, this wonderful conversation that is going nowhere, uh, but is itself valuable and and happens human. over time and yeah uh, the other great influence i mean if you're talking about influences i, I studied montaigne very deeply at oxford and uh, montaigne also profoundly affected me also pascal at this point and my thesis was also really that there is a hidden doctrine of christianity within oakshot's thought even though he barely mentions it uh and it was only the second ever dissertation written on michael oakshot no one touched him uh, he was regarded as a Tory and therefore not, not even read. There was a whole issue in 1973 of political theory which just trashed everything he ever did. Uh, and, and presumably this stuff about the sort of priority of practice yeah. goes, sits rather comfortably alongside the idea that and Catholicism practice is the sort of yes. is one of the sort of first things you do. I mean, it's actually you know there's a very Protestant idea that it all starts with belief and then you end no. up going, but actually it starts with doing. It's it's Wittgenstein in a way, it's sort of like. Well, I think of it as the difference between Paul and Jesus. Right. Paul is attempting to construct a system. I mean, he's a genius and a spiritual, extraordinary figure. I mean, one of the greatest figures in human history, but. Jesus didn't present a religion. He just was. Christianity wasn't a doctrine. It, it was, uh, uh, I mean, put it this way, Paul invented Christianity. Jesus was it, was Christianity. And that simplicity and the, the possibility of, uh, uh, of not having this Manichaean ideology up here, judging this thing down here and this horrible... Formatting it, constant, it. Yeah. This constant battle between the two, which I think Mokshan understood to be a real plague of the modern mind and the modern state and the modern person, uh, could be reconciled through understanding religion, for example, as practice. Um, religion for him was a combination, a fusion of two modes of experience. And one of them was the practical life, because it was really... And that was what's interesting. He qualified religion within the practical zone, not the philosophical zone. Uh, it was a way of living, not an eternal truth in that sense. Uh, but belief is imminent in the way of living. Yes. Yeah. And I think Christianity actually, if it were to reorganize itself and explain itself in that way, uh, would be far more successful in communicating to people today. I think mo more people are Christian than realize they are. They just they, they know that this is a good thing. They know that it is good to put someone else in front of you. So yes, Oakshot was this great synthesis for me. Uh, and so I just then, but then I went back to the New Republic where I was given an internship and then I was a junior editor and I was writing. Um, uh, I was writing about Ratzinger. I was writing about uh, Scruton. I was writing about uh, all sorts of things. And... Uh, and then I went back and finished, spent a year in Boston and finished my dissertation in one year uh, by just simply immersing myself in everything Oakshot had ever written from beginning to end. And then because there was, because there was no secondary literature, there's only one other, Paul Franco had written another dissertation. It was great for, for the grad student. You don't have to wade through all this crap. You can just go directly to the writer, the thinker, and just go there yourself. And it was the happiest year of my life, I think. Uh, it was also the, the time when I came out. So I was writing this dissertation as I was uh, exploring. How, how old are you? How old I'm you? in my, then I'm in my late 20s, I think. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I had okay. come out earlier, but this was my first time as an adult, self-understood <laughs> homosexual in, in Boston, and my first boyfriend there. So... When, when, so when did you? We've we've spoke so much. We could we could talk about this know, forever, and ever, is, and ever and ever and ever. My life as Lady Bracknell would say it was crowded with incidents. <laughs> I, every, when did you start becoming the sort of like Andrew Sullivan style columnist? Uh, well, I wrote this piece in 1989 that the New Republic ran, which was the case for gay marriage, oh, and it was the first piece I'd written. I didn't. I, I really wasn't publicly out. I was privately out, but I wasn't publicly. And this was a real step. And it created a certain amount of sensation at the time because it was an outrageous idea uh, in 1989. And from a conservative... From a completely conservative point of view, uh, from an Oxfordian point of view. And if you read Virtually Normal, uh, which my first book came out in 95, uh, which is this 
argument about homosexuality, which leads to the uh, the conclusion that that marriage equality and service in the military was the, the key, the key, the, the key to the lock. And once you did that, then everything else would follow, uh, which was extremely unpopular in the gay community. Uh, I was lambasted as a, a heteronormative, patriarchal, assimilationist, blah 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 blah. But that that was the first thing that people really began to notice. And then I was at the New Republic, and I was editing, and I was interning, and I was a junior editor, and then I was another, and, and I worked hard there. I did every, I went several years by the by uh, the early nineties that I had um, had done my done my dues. But I was still incredibly young, and and then there was this sort of fight between the owner and the editor of the time who I was working for. And it was kind of tense. The New Republic was a fantastic place. Of, again, it was fighting with itself all the time. The, the editorial conferences were yelling. It was, a, it was a liberal place that was dissatisfied with what happened to leftism. And it was, was, was entertaining a different foreign policy. It was quite neoconservative foreign policy. And it was really attempting to reform big government liberalism with a kind of a more practical, uh, market-oriented, Blairite, as it were, a new Democrat approach. And it was the key person for that. We were the key magazine for Clinton. Clinton. Uh, And then to my absolute astonishment, the owner of the magazine came, took me out to a coffee one day and said, do you want to be the editor? I'm like, I'm 26 years old. I'm not even American. This is the most venerable liberal magazine in the country. What? <laughs> and he said, I think, you, I think you can do it. And not only that, I think you'll do it better. And I was kind of knocked sideways. Uh, and I think in some ways I was foolish, but I said, well, maybe could I the editor was going to take a leave and I could be acting editor for a while. So it would be, I would, I'd be able to see what it was like, but I wouldn't have to be committed to it. And when I did started doing that in that summer, then the owner decided, Marty, uh, that, that he wanted me to be permanent. So there I was. This, uh, and at that point, I was also with all my friends. Who was, I was out. And then suddenly, uh, overnight, uh, in 93, um, I was the openly gay, Catholic, conservative editor of this liberal magazine, which at that point really was hot. It was a hot magazine. I mean, it was, it was, the, it was the key magazine in Washington. It was the magazine was delivered to every congressional office, the White House, so the every thing, week. So the thing, about, the thing about Andrew Sullivan becomes that you live all these contradictions then. Is that the thing that people Yes, and then I, had a, then I had an Andrew Leibowitz <laughs> Gap ad, and, and uh, it was a huge fuss. But remember, I was the only out person in Washington, D.C., in a public sense. There was no other gay journalist anywhere. Uh, no gay politicians, and suddenly this kid from England was openly gay, uh, and I didn't think it was a big. I mean, I, I intuited it might be a fuss. I remember having a conversation with the owner, saying, "You know, they're going to ask me this because everybody knows I'm gay, and I, I, I'm not going to lie. Why? I'm not going to construct some stupid closet. And I'm not going to say it's not relevant because it is relevant. Uh, it happened to be a moment with extreme interest in gay rights, and AIDS was raging. We had." Uh, a real moment in understanding the role of homosexuals in the society, in my view, was actually I want to pursue this subject in this magazine and I want to find a way to advance these ideas and arguments. This is happening while death is all around. So I have this dual life of being this kind of suddenly famous uh, literary, intellectual, political kind of person, uh, I guess, um, and at the same time I'm living this life of personal, emotional trauma of quite extreme kind and in which when I go in every day to this magazine, absolutely no one really understands what's happening, even in the same city because we were so segregated. So no one knew and no one really cared, to be honest. Um, and uh, so that was a surreal experience. And then, but I did it for you've, five you've years. You've lived through your life. You have seen the thing, these things that you hoped for, that you wrote about in that article. You've seen them all come to fruition. Yeah. I mean, there can hardly have been a life where someone intellectually wanted something that seemed so impossible that that's actually now seems impossible to think it was otherwise. Yes, in one lifetime. How is that? I mean, that that's an extraordinary moral change. It's almost impossible to think about any other shift like that. Uh, that's happened in so short a period of time. Yes, and I was extremely concerned that I should make the arguments without a resort to identity politics. Uh, I wanted to 
tell the straight world what we had in common, not what set us apart. I wanted to integrate gay people into their own families because they were already there. I wanted to protect their relationships from being destroyed because, uh, because they had no legal rights over each other or over their children. Um, and, of course, while this crisis is happening around me in the gay community, it fueled me with intensity about this. But, of course, also in that time, the gay community was highly polarized and, uh, and very tense and on the edge. I mean, we, we, this could have been the extinct. I mean, it could have been it could have turned also into a horrible campaign against us. But uh, so that fueled it. I didn't just write that piece. I wrote uh, then, then then when I was diagnosed, I thought, fuck, well, I'm um, I got a few years. Do I keep doing this job? Uh, and I decided to keep doing it. And uh, then I um, also decided that I, I wrote this big essay, really mapping out the politics of homosexuality, which is reinventing it really, you know, against queer theory, against the entire leftist narrative of homosexuality and returning it actually to the narrative of gay rights that existed before Stonewall, um, um, a, a great and important history of that movement that the left has sort of erased from, from memory, but which was actually, they were actually arguing about gay marriage in the Mattachine Review in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and this was obliterated by the Stonewall movement, the new and left, which took over. The, yes, it all took over this liberal and small c conservative politics of integration. And I didn't think of it as assimilation. I thought of it as integration. We're always going to be different, but we can be part of the same family, an equal part of the same politics. And and then it became a crusade for me. And when I quit the New Republic, uh, partly because the, 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 the meds for HIV suddenly became possible, but the dosages were so massive that it was basically impossible to do, do a job and absorb these drugs every day. I mean, I, there were moments when in the last few months that I was working there that, that, I, that I, every day I had to take the pills at a certain time. I would take about 35 at a time. And within an hour, I would... I'd be, have to lie down on a couch and I'd pass out for an hour as my liver and my body tried to process this amount. They massively overdosed us because they were terrified of resistance. And we were the guinea pigs in this experiment for the cocktail therapy. And after a while, and also just, just psychologically and, and emotionally just exhausted from this process, uh, I just decided I couldn't do it anymore. And after five years, I, I quit. And that was a big fuss too. I'm I'm interested in um, I'm interested in this sort of Clinton this this Clinton thing and mm -hmm. uh, and how that sort of squares with the sort of conservative instincts. I I suppose what um, I'm anxious about is the um, th that sort of classical liberalism and how that's integrated into a more conservative instinct. In one sense, I was talking to I did with this with Scruton uh, a little while ago, and I, I said to him, you know, I. Ha you know, capitalism is the greatest change agent the world has ever known. How can you be a conservative and be so enthusiastic about this thing that changes everything? And, and now I'm sort of trying to... Here's, here's why. A conservative like Oakeshott understands politics to be a, a balancing act between what he regarded as civil association and enterprise association. Those are the terms he used, by which he meant that human beings in society have two basic models. One is they all join in a common effort for something, which is important and integral to us, but also that they treat each other entirely as individuals and operate with freedom. And, and, and these two parts of human life are both important. And the conservative is essentially the, the, the one who's skeptical of these great joint projects. But Human life requires those great projects every now and again. There's no, there is not a fundamental truth or doctrine about human behavior. So the right and left impulses within philosophy are really because they're balancing these two parts of human nature, so social change. Yes. And the idea that society <clears throat> should always be run on the libertarian or capitalist or mode or individualistic mode is just wrong. It's a distortion. It's, it's, it's an ideology. And this is what's gone wrong with the right. They turned conservatism into an ideology regardless of the circumstances. And I thought in the early 90s, for the sake of the polity, it was important, very important the Democrats came back to power. Important to keep the, the whole coherence of the polity together so that uh, they would also be able to, in some ways, 
solidify and integrate the reforms of the 80s and early 90s into, and this is what Blair and Clinton did. Now, I was a Tory, but I saw the point of supporting a moderate Democrat, which really was a, a, a real punch against the far left. I mean, Clinton, Clinton, Obama, my two favorite are small C conservatives. They're not radical leftists and they were opposed by the leftists. And I'm not a partisan. I would have supported Blair in 97 because I thought the Tories needed to be kicked out and it was time for a little adjustment. I believe in, I believe in everybody taking their turns in a system. The goal is the system's maintenance in a free society, not one side winning or one side So you're side not going to tell me this is rubbish, but I'm going to... I have a sort of hard left type of... This is sort of like... There's a sort of a hard, I have a sort of hard left nub, which is hard to really? dislodge. Good really. for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a, I have a... So, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I describe myself as a hard left Tory. It's, it's the best I can do. But, um, but part of me thinks that that uh, Clinton-Blair thing is sowing the seeds for the sort of alienation between, uh, uh, you know, that, that sort of liberalism and the Rust Belt, you know, the, yeah. you know and that, that Trump just doesn't make... Trump makes sense as a reaction to all of yes, that. Yes, it was a victim of its success. Yes. And then the people who were commanding it mistook this pragmatic turn in the 70s and 80s for the absolute truth and pursued it even though it was utterly inappropriate to the circumstances and did not recognize that it was leading to complexities and complications that needed to be addressed. And so it needed to be reformed or it needed a solid liberal uh, attack on some of these uh, 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 manifestations of late capitalism, which were not, in the end, helping people live meaningful and good lives. I mean, I think for the last 30 years, capitalism has failed middle class people and that's his job. And and so it, was, it should have been the role of conservatives, if they were conservatives, not ideologues, but see this balancing act and pragmatic to say, now's the time to balance it with some collective action, uh, some, some address of inequality, uh, some understanding that our own people come before global trade, that there's more to a society than its GDP. And that should have happened. It didn't because it, turned, it ossified and calcified into this rigid market ideology that really is the antithesis of the conservatism that Oakeshott would have supported. That's, that's what... So I, and where are these sorts of conservatives that you want now in American politics? Almost nowhere. I mean, yeah, they are yeah, coming. I They're coming, but I... Are they? But I was, you know, I was demonised on the right I mean, uh, because I also objected, uh, I mean, after the fact, but I became a deep opponent of the Iraq War, of neoconservatism. I saw exactly... Uh, where it was going wrong. And, you, you supported it to start with, I absolutely you? did, uh, uh, with a blind enthusiasm, which was functioning now, I understand, as a kind of um, uh, PTSD from 9-11. I mean, I think, I think that what that did to the American psyche distorted all of us uh, emotionally. We were not thinking straight because what had happened was such a great wound against the un very understanding of what America was. It was, there was. The grief was so intense the fear was so great uh, that we stopped thinking. And I, I, I'm ashamed of what the way my mind got completely overwhelmed by these emotions and I didn't think seriously. And by my own, it didn't even live up to my own bloody principles. And this happened in real time. I was blogging every day. There's no escape from accountability. And uh, I came to terms with the fact that I was wrong. And I said so. And I even have a little ebook saying I was wrong. I, I, I really tried to make amends for this and to explain and understand why I had gone wrong and what that meant for my broad understanding of foreign policy, uh, which is the big change that I have made politically, is I'm no longer a neoconservative in that sense. I mean, I was always a little skeptical of it. I wasn't a four-bore one. Uh, but a uh, much more pragmatic Tory idea of foreign policy as a pursuit of national interests and a belief that America really shouldn't be running the entire globe. It's, it's bad for America and bad for the world. Give me the, your, your Trump take, OK, because in all sorts of ways, there's, there's I mean, I mean, I, I, apart from whatever his personal character is, let's just like, let's leave that bit out of it if you can. But in terms of what he represents... In a number of ways, you might say he represents some of the things that you've just described. Yeah, I think that the forces behind <clears throat> Trumpism, as it were, or the shift in conservatism, um, uh, were overdue. Uh, 
And I think it's important to understand that and also understand this particular individual, this particular moment is one of the most dangerous people on earth and a deranged and dangerous threat to very to the American constitution and the American and liberal democracy itself. He's a tyrant. He's an uncontrolled tyrant uh, who, whose abuses are so great, they almost can't be understood. Uh, he's so outside the norm of any president before or any leader of an American system that it's almost hard to, to take. He has no feel for anything that is democratic or any of the values I've just spoken about. He believes in power. He, he doesn't believe in zero, any non-zero-sum relationship. He's a pathological and, I think, a psychologically disturbed, malignant narcissist. He has no understanding of the world. He has no business being in that office. And I want him removed. Uh, the crimes that he's committed against the Constitution are graver than any single president before. And the fact that they are and, – and the way in which people are almost dazed. It's like the big lie works. Well, the big attack on our Constitution works because you can't really believe it's happening. But, but what it have is. The, what have the, what have the, it feels to me that the Democrats still haven't quite learned what they need to learn. I mean, irrespective of the, the, the Trump phenomenon as a psychopath or whatever, I'm going to share that view. But uh, the idea that there was something about Trumpism which was long overdue, as you just said, that, that, that had some sort of connection with parts of America that felt lost and, and um, you know, Vance's stuff and all of that sort of stuff. It, it, is there something that the, my, my feeling is that the Democrats still haven't really found a way of dealing with that? Yeah, you're right. And that's terrible. Um, yeah. And it's... And it's Terrifying, and the, but of course the right should be the people who really get it, and they 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 haven't really reformed either. I mean, if you look at actually what's happened, we've had another fucking major dose of supply side economics in, and that's yes. all that's really happened. Yes, that's right. We've had no real effect on immigration. There's been no real effect on trade. Manufacturing is still declining, culturally and sociologically and spiritually. America is in one of the deepest crises ever been, and not only that, but all the things that you and I are thinking about that need to be addressed. He has toxified the very political movement that could do that in a way that is really damaging. He's entrenched the left in its position. He has made it harder to change. And it'll be impossible to argue for restraining immigration for for reasonable, rational reasons, for example, mass immigration, anymore without being called a fucking white supremacist because look at that guy. He is that and he did that. And, And he's also a cruel, vicious person who doesn't give a shit about any individual life. Uh, and is inhumane and all the rest of it. That is not the argument for an, a pragmatic understanding of restricting immigration for the sake of all sorts of the arguments that we might talk about. And so he's absolutely toxic to the cause you, you seem to be advancing and have, nonetheless having been the prime symptom of that, yes, yes, those yes. problems. Exactly so it, right. It's a horrible combination. Yes, it is, isn't it? Uh, and not only that, but his existence has empowered the uh, the illiberal, anti-liberal left in a way that is truly disturbing, in, w- in which we have authoritarianism on the right versus this really creepy totalitarianism on the left. Uh, and the middle is, is, is in terrible decay. And those of us who are... I'm, I'm getting animated now. But yeah, those, yeah, of us no, who are, right. those of us who are trying to defend that, it's so hard to win the partisan cross-currents because no one wants to hear this. This argument requires you to be disdainful of both sides and to see a different kind of way forward and have a different analysis situation at a time when the polarization is so intense that you can't even get a hearing. And even if you do make the essential arguments, you're demonized instantly by either side. I mean, the right won't give me a hearing and the left regards me as the devil. Uh, and But I think... What I'm trying to understand and advance this conservatism that will adjust, that will take care of most people, that will try and save by reforming capitalism as opposed to pretending there's no problem when there is a fucking massive problem. <laughs> it's a wilderness right now for us. So, we're, so, we're lonely in that wilderness. But I, but in some ways, as, as a writer, that's thrilling. Yes, yes, I understand that. That's, 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 and we uh, are changing yes. things. You look at someone like Rayhan Salam or, or Ross Douthat or, uh, or, or many of the younger thinkers and writers on, on the, the non-Randian right, as it were, and they are beginning to grapple with this. And they are beginning to grapple with... Uh, the trouble with internationalism. They are beginning to understand and grapple with the problems of globalism. Um, 
And unless the right does that, the left is going to seize this um, uh, because they are going to discredit the entire idea of capitalism because it's because of its decadence right now, and it's and it's the the kind of cronyism as well as the globalizing uh, forces that have destroyed national cohesion and social meaning. How does all this work for, so, you know, you look at us over here mm -hmm. from the other side of the pond, but, you know, because you know it and love it a lot, mm -hmm. you know, care about you, it. You, and care about it. And so how does, how does all of that affect us? Are, are, are we doing the same? Is Boris the same as Trump? No. He's it's not, utterly different. Mm. Corbyn is Trump. Oh, wow. Go on. Really? Yes. Go on. He has no business being there, no experience. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's led a populist revolt against his own party. Uh, he has no idea what to do. Um, and there's a kind of uh, uh, cult around him uh, that one saw that was very close to Trump. His relations with the press are like, his <laughs> hatred of the press is like Trump. Uh, his, his extraordinary radicalism in dismantling alliances and the, the world order that has actually been, needs adjustment, needs restraint, but shouldn't be gotten rid of entirely. Uh, he, is, he is, to my mind, uh, the same phenomenon as Trump, but on the other side. As someone who came into the party really or was always there, but then took over the entire thing. It, it, the, the, the far left there took over the the way that the far right took over the Republicans. Uh, and uh, so I think those that's the parallel. Right. Now, what and I also believe that the difference between the two is that this country's parliamentary democracy has survived very well. I'm not one of these people that thinks that the world has looked at Britain and laughed at it. They have, but because they're stupid. But in fact, Parliament about has worked, Brexit, you mean about Brexit and about the British Parliament. It is not a problem if in a deeply divided country the Parliament is hung. It is that's it's it's doing its job, and by bringing that together and having these endless awful fights and refusals and impasses and moves forward, this is democracy working. It's not a crisis, uh, and we, the, the, this country made a binary decision. Uh, with with one side being almost the same as the other side in support. I mean, uh, and that leads in a democracy to something very difficult to manage. But the other thing about Britain with vis-a-vis -vis America is that it can, it can lead America. Uh, and I think there is actually a possibility. I have a different view of Boris and what he's doing than, than people in America do. And I, I think I've spent this week trying to understand it better, but talking to everybody I can find. Um, and what Boris is doing is actually acknowledging this shift. You can't go on. It's not, we can't be Osborne forever. It wasn't working. Uh, and it led to this uprising. And that uprising could lead to much worse things on the far right. And although the, the far right took, well, we, we could disagree, but the far right in America took over the Republicans like that with a complete outsider, the way that they did with Corbyn on the left. But Boris is an establishment person. He's a normal politician who made the cardinal error of judging the country right as opposed to all the others who got it wrong. And I don't think he's going to – I don't think we're going to – if he gets elected, he's re-elected, he's going to be an extremist right wing. I think, in fact, the ability to sustain the nation state, to make it meaningful, to adjust it so that the people who have left behind don't feel so left behind – it may just be the feeling too uh, – is – possible in this country. Uh, and if it is, and in a moderate, sensible way, and what the Tory party is doing now, what it has always done, which is co-opt and tame these movements uh, and even marshal them. Even populism. Even yes, no, of course it will marshal populism. and taming. And exactly. That's what it's about. Uh, you don't give in to it. You listen to it. You understand it. And then you take a moderate and centrist positions to appease and ameliorate it. Uh, and and you also don't dismiss it. Uh, and I think there's a chance. I mean, look, it's going to be a huge challenge for him. Um, but I think it's doable, to be honest. And I think you could have a saner, more adjusted conservatism in this country that is a model. I mean, the Republican Party is going to face an absolute crisis about what they do after this. Where do they belong? Who are they? What, what do they support? They're a, they're a personal personality cult at this point. He's not the, there's no Republican Party left. It's a personality cult. Uh, 
it's a really, really disturbing phenomenon. Uh, and uh, so conservatism has a real challenge right now to adjust, to understand what's happening uh, on a, a immigration, trade, the idea of the nation state, um, and the idea of a common good in a country that, in which everybody is... Uh, and I wonder, you know, some of these polarizations are very hard to unwind. But in a way, you know, I think people, it's a great question in the next year or so, I think. Is Boris capable of pivoting a little, having co-opted this, having taken it and done it, and to, 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 to reconcile the Remainers, really, to the new order in a way that does not offend them and, and, and rub it in their faces? And I actually think he's, it's possible for him to do that. I, when you think of what he did at mayor, as mayor of London, he's, he's pretty liberal Tory. He's liberal Tory. He's not, he's, and he's, I'll tell you this, I, my own view is that he's, that's what he's going to do. He's going to pivot. Um, but Brexit will have happened symbolically in people's heads, and it will have happened in certain key ways in terms of the ability of the European court to control all that and the ability to have free trade agreements. But we may well end up with a trade agreement with Europe that is very, not that far off the May deal, to be honest. But he will have, he will have gotten the far right on board with it. Uh, so, this is great optimism. Is, this, this is really good optimism. And he's to gonna, have. then he's going to fucking destroy the ERG. <laughs> they're going to be the they're going to be the next DUP. <laughs> this man lets everyone down in the end. It's, it's just a matter of time. <laughs> and <laughs> and <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're and, saying. And it's uh, <laughs> it's a it's, and also he's look he's talented. He's he's a he's a force. And he's a very interesting person, but he's a, he's a performance. And the thing he's got, even though it's a cliched, old school, the Oxford Union shtick, is he does make you laugh. Um, and I, was, I, was, I, was, I remember that when he said farewell to Burko, you know, that, that speech he gave, uh, which was hilarious. And when you looked at the comments, you saw all the labor benches falling over themselves with laughter. Laughter is an incredibly powerful thing. It, it kind of breaks the tension. It reminds you of reality. It makes other people human. Uh, you notice that you will never see ever a picture of Trump laughing. As far as I'm concerned, I, I've never seen him laugh. Certainly never laugh at anybody else's There's joke. no sense of humor in that way. No, no because... Laugh, can you imagine laughing? Could you imagine anything that would make him laugh at himself, for instance? No. It's not possible. Is no, it, it isn't. He's psycho that. This is why he's not psychologically well. Um, the reason he won't laugh at another person's joke is because when you think about it, when you laugh at someone's joke, you give them a little power. power. Yeah, of course. Yes. And he, he's too insecure to do that. Uh, Boris is different. And the English, the supreme virtue in England is having a sense of humor. That's, that's always been the case. Uh, I mean, it's a strange virtue, and I'm glad it's there. It's a bizarre virtue because <laughs> of all the virtues, it's pathetic. It's very minor. But it is there, and it's why we never became a fascist state. It's, it's you know, the old... You take war. the piss out of goose steppers. I yes. mean, that's, you know, I mean, Brilliant. that's what you do. <laughs> well, you giggle at the... I mean, it's just... Giggle is a better word. That's what the word Orwell that's used. The, yeah, giggle. Fa fascists are funny. They're, They're funny. stupid. Uh, you look at Hitler, he's a fucking... When you look at him, he's a ridiculous yes. figure. What What's the stupid hair? And people will say the same thing about Trump. He's a ridiculous figure. Of course. Figure. Yes. The only response to Trump is to laugh out yes. loud yes. at everything he says. Yes. Yes. What do you miss from? What do you miss from here? I know it's just going to end on something. Oh. What do you miss from here? What do you miss? Oh, everything. I miss the words. I miss hearing things like "crikey" and "marmite." I miss. Okay. <laughs> I, I miss the. I miss all the cliched things. Yes, yes, yes. At some level, I miss. I miss the beauty. You, we, this country is in its rural, it's, it's, it's a stunningly beautiful place. And I've always believed in that, which is why I'm a very strong environmentalist and always have been. Uh, and uh, I'm proud of Britain and uh, proud to have been, been one of it. I'm, you know, I don't have given up my passport. I'm a dual citizen, so I can... Her Majesty has not recognised this usurper. Am I giving my loyalty to this... This foreign... You uh, traitor. My traitor, yes. Um, <laughs> and I also love America. Uh, because, and also because those two countries have pioneered a way of life that is simply better than almost any previous way of life in terms of reconciling the things that human beings have to reconcile. And that is an amazing and fragile and achievement that w our job is to preserve. That is, my own, that is the conservative 
It is to preserve the liberal order and to adjust to make sure it survives and to make sure it doesn't get off balance. And that requires a constant improvisation and rethinking and observation from the ground up and an understanding that you will only change the world through practice, not through theory. And, and we've, got our, we've got our hands full. So it's, it's exhilarating time in a way, and as well as a terrifying one. Andrew Sullivan, great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing. And I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Unheard.com.